Good morning. My name is Matt Duell, as Kondo said, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's my privilege this morning to uh, continue us in our series that we are calling Rebuildable. This is week two, and uh, so you're catching us still on the front end of this series. Um, and again, those of you with us for the very first time, so grateful to have you here this morning. Thank you uh, for stepping into this place, uh, an unfamiliar place, taking that courageous step to come in. We so appreciate, and uh, it means the world to us that you are here. And we trust this morning that you will have an opportunity to connect with Jesus, Lord of all, as you are here this morning. But we are in week two of this series, and... Um, as always, you can always catch up on the series online, missionpoint.net. We post all of our messages there, so you can uh, catch up if you missed week one. So I'll be leading us this morning, and then uh, Kondo will be with us next Sunday to uh, bring us part three. And then two weeks from now, uh, we will be celebrating Baptism Sunday together, and we'll pick up the series again after our baptism. Well, in this series, we are acknowledging that, yes, the world is broken. It's a broken place. There's so much around us that seems to be broken beyond repair. Sadly, I don't have to say a whole lot to convince you of that. And whether we feel it directly in our lives and in our homes, or we are closely connected to a story of brokenness, or we just turn on the evening news and we see the brokenness that is just pouring out before us. It is just way too easy for us to be overwhelmed by the desperation that surrounds us. It's a time where fear can just easily win the day. It's a time to, and a season where it would just be you know, so understandable to become just so jaded and cynical and begin to lose hope, any hope of there ever being any sense of restored peace. And yet we believe it's just simply not true. You see, we believe and we are trusting in a God that we know loves to restore things. We believe and we worship this God that we know is in the business of redemption. And we're also operating under the belief that God loves to do some of his handiwork through our lives. He loves to use our lives and our stories to be the platform for his work of redemption. So in this series, we're taking a look at the life of a man named Nehemiah. And he is made, of, he is made aware of some unbelievable brokenness in his world. And it does not sit well with him. And what he does throughout this, this book of Nehemiah is he models for us this beautiful picture of vision and hope and leadership and faithfulness in the midst of an absolute mess. He partners with God to do what many had resigned themselves to believe could never be repaired. And he just dives into this work of fixing that which is broken. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, we will get there in just a moment. If you don't, we'll have the scripture up on the screen uh, for you. But just as a little bit of a review for Nehemiah and where we're finding him. The story of Nehemiah takes place in uh, 444 B.C. And Nehemiah is found in uh, the Persian capital in the fortified uh, fortress, the, the, um, the fortress of the king 
That, that's where he is. That's where he's living because he is the cupbearer to the Persian king, King Artaxerxes. And about 150 years prior to this time and to this story, Jerusalem is attacked and destroyed by one of the previous kings, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar goes into the promised land and he absolutely levels and destroys the city. He takes captive two to three million people and and exiles them to Babylon. And in the process, he tears down the temple. He tears down the city walls. He burns down the city gates. And as he leaves the promised land, he leaves it in absolute defenseless state. Eventually, of all the the Jewish people who were exiled, about 50,000 of them return back to Jerusalem to try and reestablish and to rebuild their lives and to rebuild their city. However, things are not going well because without walls surrounding them to protect them, to seal off the city, the surrounding nations, the thieves, the bullies, they can just come in and they can pillage and plunder whenever and however they want. And so some friends and family, they come and they visit Nehemiah in the Persian capital. And he asked them, hey, how are things going? How are things back home? How is the family? How are our people doing? And that's when he finds out that they're in this desperate, torn, broken place. And immediately, Nehemiah is overcome with emotion. He weeps. He mourns. He fasts. He prays. In fact, we find that he enters into this four-month season of prayer. He, He cries out to God, just begging God, God, please hear my prayers. He begins to confess his sins, his personal sins, and the sins of the Israelites, the Jewish nation, on on behalf of them. He just begins to confess sins, and he leans into the promises of God. Where he says, God, you said, you warned us, if we weren't obedient, that you would, you would scatter us, and it would be a mess, and that has happened. But God, you also said, if we would seek you, if we would come after you in obedience, if we would return to you, you would gather us back, regardless of how far spread out and how broken we may be. So God, would you do that work? Would you do that work that only you can do? But he doesn't just ask God to fix it. He includes himself in the solution. And with an awareness of his proximity and position with the king, he asks that God will grant him favor with King Artaxerxes. God, you do the work that only you can do. You start this work of redemption and restoration. You move in the hearts of people, including the king. And if you can open his heart to hear me out, well, I'll step into this work that I believe you have called me to do. And what we find is that this news of brokenness among his people moves Nehemiah. It's as if he's pre-programmed or, or designed with this internal passion, something in him that rises up and says, something has got to be done about this. It's not that it should be done. It's not that it could be done. It has to be done. And he begins to carry with him this holy discontent, this thing inside him, as we talked last week, that causes him to pound the table and weep, this thing that grips him, 
this idea that the physical rebuilding of walls could facilitate the beginnings of spiritual rebuilding for the hearts and the lives of the Jewish people. And I was so moved this week as, as many of you reached out to me and shared some of the very things that caused you to pound the table and weep. Statistics and stories and, and pictures of brokenness and things that are in front of you and in your life. And they are just gripping you and they are holding on to you because you believe that somehow, some way, your life has been designed and has been created and has been put in this place, in this moment, in this time to do something about it. And it's always hard to look brokenness in the eye. It's always hard to face these realities. But it never ceases to amaze me how beautiful it is when God moves us to do something about it. And we get to see the ways that he has uniquely designed us to do something about it. Well, Nehemiah shows us this so well. To engage what's broken, to lean into fixing what seems hopeless, we must have this dependence with God. On God. It's where we start. It's the first step. We must start with prayer. And as we align our hearts with His, I believe He will begin this process of opening up a vision of the good work that He has created for us to do. And vision is so, so critical. See, vision is the preferred future. We are here today. This is where we're at. This is our reality. And these are the things that we are facing. But out here, this is the thing that, oh, someday, someday it could be like this. And we can start a faithful journey to start taking steps forward and towards that future. And you see, without vision, we can be aimless. Without vision, we can just jump from one thing to the next. Without vision, when circumstances come up, we just react. Rather than having the vision and the foresight of knowing how to respond. One idea from the other, one emotion to the next. Until we're left feeling exhausted and hopeless. Really quickly before we get into uh, Nehemiah, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, where there is no revelation or vision, people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. If there's no revelation, no vision, nothing that is guiding us towards this preferred future, then we can start to go a little crazy. And we see that all the time especially in the midst of tough circumstances and brokenness. We recklessly react. We shoot from the hip. We just go for it. We do whatever feels good in the moment, whatever feels like we should do. We say whatever just comes to our mind. But Proverbs says, blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. As in blessed is the one who pays attention to wisdom and insight and goes back to God and seeks him And goes to his word and looks for a fresh word of vision. Blessed is the one who takes a breath and says, God, what would you have us do here? This world is nuts. It's going crazy. And yet, I think you have more in store for us than what I'm seeing and experiencing right in front of me. And here's the point. I don't know about you, but I don't make good decisions when I'm in fear. 
I make good decisions when I'm placing my hope and my trust in God. And when I pause to acknowledge that he is God and I'm not. And God, what would you have me to do here? That's what Nehemiah does. Rather than rushing into Jerusalem to get busy with restoration work, he leans into wisdom and he enters a season of prayer, a season of getting prepared. So today we want to talk about this idea of developing vision. No matter what you are facing, I believe you need a vision. Something that looks beyond the moment that you are currently in. We all need a vision, a fresh vision, because a vision is a reminder. It's the bullseye that we paint on the wall that gives us something to aim for. If you are in difficult circumstances and you feel like your situation is tough and it's beginning to feel just a little bit hopeless, you need a vision. If you're saying, hey, I'm great. Life is good. My circumstances, they're, they're actually fine. Well, that's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. There's brokenness all around you that needs your help. You see, the extra margin that you may have in your life is good, and that's a blessing from the Lord, and I believe he has blessed you to be a blessing to others. You have gifts, you have passions, and there are people that need you, that need a vision for what it means to step out of their brokenness. And when you contribute your gifts and your passions to the story, you can make a difference in this rebuilding work. So for Nehemiah, he learns his people are in a desperate state. Something inside him rises up in the belief that partnership with God, that he can be part of the solution. He pleads for God to do the work only he can do. And then he positions himself in this ready place. And then after four months of praying, God answers Nehemiah's request and grants him favor with the king. Let's take a look. Nehemiah 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting behind, beside him, said, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. A few thoughts. 
I believe that Nehemiah's time of prayer helped him to develop a solid plan. Right away, his heart is connected with what needs to be done and why it needs to be done. See, I think very quickly he sees, oh my goodness, if there's no walls, the people cannot be protected. What is the condition of their heart? How could they have any sense of faith and trust as they're just constantly being oppressed? There has to be walls. There has to be gates. He gets the the what and the why right away. But I imagine much like us in these situations that we find ourselves in, Nehemiah is probably scratching his head over how. I'm just a cupbearer to the king. I'm one guy. I'm almost 800 miles away from the problem. I've never even been there to see it. But something inside me just is telling me I've got to do this. But how? How am I going to pull this off? And I think over time, with planning and dreaming and prayer, Nehemiah was able to flesh out what he needed to do and how the king could use his power and influence to help him to make it possible. So the moment the king asks in verse 4, Nehemiah, what is it that you want? He is totally ready with the answer. And oh, I love the second half of verse four so much. This is so great. I think we can all relate to this. So the king asked, hey, so what do you want? And the next thing, then I prayed to the God of heaven and he's been praying for four months. He's been in this moment of just pouring over this. And all of a sudden the moment is there and it's like, oh, okay, Lord, this is it. This is the big one. Help me out here. Oh, Lord, please help me as I'm about to do this thing. Oh, my goodness. Because again, remember, this is not his place to be approaching the king with this kind of mood of sadness and this kind of, let me ask you for some really big favors. This was so out of place and so out of context for the culture. He's literally putting his life at risk. And so he connects with God one more time. Okay, God, is this it? Okay, I guess this is it. I'm trusting. All right, here we go. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king says, yes. The king does have favor. And that was Nehemiah's request to God. God, I pray that you would give me favor with this man. So when Nehemiah is looking into his eyes and he realizes, oh, shoot, I have favor with this man. God has answered my prayer. And the king says, hey, you can't go forever. I want you to come back. But yes, you can go and you can go do this work. Okay, great. Well, um, hey, while we're at it, can I get an official note, like a hall pass from you that will let me just travel all the way through the trans-Euphrates back into Judah, back into Jerusalem. And basically I can just show everybody, hey, the king's got my back. Nobody mess with me, all right? Don't touch me. I'm safe here. Can I have one of those? Sure, you can have one of those. Okay, also, can I get a note from the boss of the National Forest so he doesn't lose his mind when I start cutting down some of the like priceless trees to you know, start harvesting some lumber? Can I, can I have that? Can I have all those trees? Sure, that's fine. You can have that. And then to put a cherry on top, the king sends the army officers and the cavalry with him. 
This is so good. The Lord opens up the king's heart. He grants Nehemiah favor and Nehemiah is ready. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he just continues to impress me with his wisdom. Let's take a look. Uh, Chapter two, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And then the following verses, it tells the story of him basically taking this tour, this midnight tour around the city where he goes around and he inspects all of the brokenness and all of the rubble and all of the burned down and broken gates. And I just can't even imagine how, how he's just come to town and he, he's just keeping this a secret and what he's up to, but he does. He goes through this, verse 17. Next day, then I said to them, the rulers and the people, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let's start rebuilding. So they begin this good work. As Nehemiah arrives, it must have been a scene. I mean, here is Nehemiah. He's got some army officers. He's got some cavalry. He has trailer loads of the best Persian trees And he's just rolling into town. And somehow for three days, he keeps all of this under wraps as to what he is up to. And he takes this late night stroll while all the local rulers and people are asleep. And I think in his first three days into Jerusalem and through this walk around the rubble, he's getting this firsthand look and assessment at what is really going on. What's the full story and scope of what he is facing? You see, so far he's only been told about the situation. And now he's want to see it and experience it for himself. That there's just such a wealth of wisdom right here in these four verses. And I, and I want to just take a moment to look at this. How many times do we take secondhand information and just start acting on it? Maybe we heard it from a trusted source. And maybe there is a reason to believe it. But how many times do we move and react and respond to secondhand information? And then later, we get the whole story. And we realize, ooh, there's a missing significant piece here. Or how about this? How many times has someone shared a struggle with you? And the immediate temptation is to dive right in and just, well, you know what you need to do is... And yet you haven't really stopped to listen to them and the pain that they're experiencing. You haven't taken a moment to really experience life from their perspective. And your advice that may be good or at the very least very well-intentioned falls short because you did not take the time to validate and try to relate. And see, Nehemiah here, he is scoping out the situation firsthand. And I think he wants to feel what people are feeling. He wants to understand the vulnerability of living in a city with no protection. I think he wants to get there and he wants to just feel what it feels like to try to go to bed at night with no protection around him 
and no thought of what's going to happen during the night and if he's even going to wake up in the morning and if all his possessions are going to be stolen, if all the, the trees are going to be hauled off and the, the soldiers are going to be gone. He has no idea. And I believe he wants to experience this because he wants to enter into the pain and into some of the mess that the Jews are experiencing. I think he's taking a temperature and a pulse of the people. Where are they at? How are they doing? What is it that they truly need? God led me here and he's given me this vision, but let me just take a moment and let me enter into some of the mess and some of the pain and assess the situation firsthand and make sure and confirm that, yes, we are heading down the right track here. So he does that. He sees it. He validates and understands some of the pain and some of the pressure. And he sees what God's already done and he's able to relay that to the people. Hey, listen, I'm here. This is why I'm here. Oh, and by the way, let me just unfold the unbelievable ways in which God has opened the doors for me to be here with all of these amazing supplies. And they all rise and jump at the opportunity to rebuild. And what started as a pound the table weeping moment for Nehemiah turns into this extended season of prayer, which I believe planted roots for a solid plan and vision of a broken city that was going to be rebuilt inside and out. In Jim Collins' research for his book, Good to Great, he developed what he called the Stockdale Paradox after meeting Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest ranking military officer taken prisoner um, as a prisoner of war during Vietnam. His plane was shot down and he was captured in 1967 and he was held prisoner until 1974 in a POW camp. Admiral Stockdale was tortured by his captors over 20 times during his seven years of imprisonment. But he never broke. And he claims he was never depressed. Because as he puts it, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never ever wavered in my faith that not only would I get out, but I would turn being in the camp into the defining event of my life that in retrospect, I would not trade. Over the years, Stockdale, he created uh, systems to try and help and serve the other prisoners, ways in which he could try and help them to survive and to mentally, physically, emotionally handle the torture they were going through. He developed a system and a language that they could begin to speak to each other in code. And he just lived out this vision for what he had and what it meant to get through this experience. And when Jim Collins asked Stockdale, who did not fare as well in the camps? Stockdale said, well, that's easy. The optimists. The optimists? You sounded completely optimistic to me, Collins said, to which Stockdale sharply corrected Collins. No, 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 I was not optimistic. What I said is that I never wavered in my faith. You see, the optimists, they would say, we'll we'll be out of here by Christmas. This is gonna end, we're gonna be out of here by Christmas. But then Christmas would come and go and then Easter would come and go and Thanksgiving would come and go and then another Christmas would come And go and the optimists, they would die from broken hearts to where they just were broken down and they couldn't handle it anymore. 
And what Stockdale said is you have to have the discipline to look honestly at the brutal and broken circumstances. The ability to confront the brutal facts and its difficulties, but at the same time have faith that the story isn't over and you will prevail in the end. And that is vision. Nehemiah never glosses over the reality of Jerusalem. He's quite honest and broken over the brutal reality of its state of disrepair. But he doesn't see it as the end of the story. He sees it as this invitation and this opportunity to be a part of the work of redemption for God's chosen people. He develops a vision for what it looks like to face the facts while trusting God, who is bigger and more powerful than any circumstance. Andy Stanley talks about the importance of vision in his book, Visioneering. A few points he makes that I want to share with you on the power of vision. First, vision stirs emotion. Vision stirs emotion. It's what helps you to pull your gaze above your circumstances and begin to see hope out on the horizon. A clear, focused vision actually allows us to experience ahead of time the emotions that are associated with the anticipated preferred future. And these emotions serve to reinforce our commitment to vision. And what I believe is that Nehemiah began to daydream about his people falling asleep in a fortified city. He lived in this fortified palace in Persia and he knew the peace that came from that. And I believe that he began to envision what it would mean for his people to start to have physically safe circumstances. And it began to rise up in him what this would do to their hearts and what this would do to their faith and their trust. And if God would just pave the way for this to happen, surely the people would see him and remember him as the God who had delivered their ancestors. See, I believe this emotion was stirred in Nehemiah and he could taste pieces of the future and it drove him forward. Vision provides motivation. Provides motivation. Are you someone that lacks motivation? Do you struggle to to just focus and be motivated and just get things done? I would guess that it has a lot to do with you lacking vision. It's the thing that helps you see the details in the journey for what they are. Steps forward, progress, the opportunity to reach the goal. There are so many things in our life that can be so mundane and so much minutia and things that we have to drill in and we have to deal with. And you can be like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. And yet vision will give you the motivation that you need to move it forward. Right now, we have some of our people who are uh, in the midst of the financial peace class. And where they're at in the context of the class is they are deep into the minutia of digging through their checkbooks and their receipts and their bank accounts because they are working to find where every one of their dollars is going. And let me tell you, for free spirits who don't like a lot of boundaries, this is torture. You don't like to do this work. (laughs) And yet, when you have vision, and when you have painted a bullseye on the wall in terms of what you're headed towards, and some of the folks in this class, they, they have had the opportunity to do this. Well, what do we want to accomplish? What's the thing that we want to do? Well, we want to pay this credit card off for good. This vacation that we've always talked about, we so badly, we want to take it, we want to get to a place where we can actually save and put things away so we can go for it. 
the student loans that are just choking the life out of us. We want to get those under control. And we want to aggressively pay those things off. Every time they come up and they say, hey, give to this thing. There's this exciting opportunity. There's love blitz. Give generously. And I'm looking at my finances and say, I don't know. I, I don't think I can give. I just want to get to a place where I can just become a crazy generous giver. You see, these are the visions and these are the targets that have been painted on the wall. And it provides motivation to get through the minutia and the mundane details that need to happen in order to accomplish the vision. And finally, vision provides direction. It serves as a roadmap. We come to a crossroad. We have a decision to make. And it's really simple. Does this help me accomplish my vision? Yes. Step forward. Does this pull me away from my vision? Yeah, it actually does. Well, ain't nobody got time for that. Step aside. Vision simplifies decision making. See, I, I, I may love pizza a lot. But eating it four meals in a row is not going to help me lose any weight. You may love playing Call of Duty with your friends until 4 a.m. It's not going to help you finish the project that counts for 70% of your grade. Let's throw it back to our last series. Condo laid it out so well for our dating couples. Making out on the couch under the blanket is good times. Not if you're wanting to honor God with your relationship and keep your boundaries intact. You may love, 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 love just sleeping in. But getting up at 6 a.m., it may give you the margin you need to accomplish your goals. You may be terrified of going to pray with a stranger, but on the flip side, your heart is just pounding out of your chest because you want your story to matter in the grander, significant story that God is writing. You may hate the idea of going to counseling, but you may hate the idea of divorce even more. See, vision meets you at the crossroads of these decisions and it provides direction. I said that was the last one. Actually, this is the last one. Vision, vision translates into purpose. A vision gives you a reason to get up in the morning. If you don't show up, there's important things that do not move forward, that do not get accomplished. And suddenly you matter a lot in the equation. As Andy says in his book, without you, what could be, what should be, won't be. Creator God made you. And he made you with a plan and purpose in mind. And when you lock into the vision that he has for your life, you begin to feel the winds of purpose just swoop in and carry you forward. What seemed impossible before begins to feel inevitable. Nehemiah knew that rebuilding the walls and the city gates were a major step, step in helping to restore the faith of the Jews. If he could see God's faithful hand moving among them, he knew they would be moved to lives of worship and obedience. And as we'll look in the coming weeks, this sense of vision and purpose caused Nehemiah to remain laser-focused even as opposition and threats and distractions begin to pour in. As we wrap up, I want to share this quick story with you. This year, uh, Caleb, our oldest son, he made the leap from homeschooling to public school. And uh, we've just always um, been in a position to just have the philosophy that with our education, our kids' education, we take it one year, one kid at a time and just sort of evaluate where they're at and what they needed. And it became really obvious for us at the end of last school year that it was time for Caleb to step in to the school environment. So at the end of the summer, I took him on a, a little retreat, just the two of us. 
And the whole desire was for us to just get away and to talk about his year and to pray over his year and talk through some vision and goals. And I shared with Caleb that he could just coast through his year and just see how it goes, or he could develop some things and identify some things that he wanted to pre-decide for the year. One of his goals is to make the school basketball team. Now, he's a fourth grader. And this is fourth grade's the first year of eligibility to try out for, for sports. And I'm not sure if you know this or not, but you Hoosiers are just a little nuts over your basketball. You take it really, really seriously. And being a fourth grader on a team that primarily fields fifth and sixth graders, the reality is tough for him. But like the Stockdale paradox, we've been honest about the tough reality that he's facing. And yet forming this solid belief within him that no matter what happens and how this ends up, it is not the end of the story. Sports are not his identity. He has that in Jesus. So he's free just to go have fun and to try his hardest. But he really wanted to put himself out there and give it a try. So he came up with some practice and disciplines that he would put into place to help him accomplish his goal. And one of his goals was to practice 30 minutes every day. Now, I can't say that he's been perfect in terms of every single day, but he's worked really, really hard. And the other day I walked out in the garage and and I saw this happening. This is all on his own. I didn't prompt him to do this. He just went for it. And you see, this is what vision does. It stirs passion. It stirs emotion. It provides motivation and direction. And then vision translates into a purpose. And for Caleb, what he's finding is that his love for sports and competition has opened up opportunities for him to connect with new friends, which is leading to some of his other goals in establishing meaningful relationships. Now, left to itself, all of this stuff can just end up being some really flat self-help motivational Stuff, But here's where we as followers of Jesus have an invitation to partner with the living God of the universe in our vision. We find our power in our life in him. So what's an area in your life that could use some vision? Maybe you've lost hope. Maybe you've given up on something. And it's time that you leaned back in with a picture of the preferred future on the forefront of your mind. What if like Nehemiah, it's time for you just to be preparing for something? Is there something you need to be preparing for? Maybe you've already tasted the vision. You have a sense of where God is leading you and you are seeing what you need to do and you are deeply feeling the why, but the how seems really daunting. It's time for you to prepare, to explore. It's time for you to lean in and to try some things. Or maybe you just need to slow down with some of your frantic reaction and responses to the circumstances around you and lean back into step one, which is to pray, to beg God to do the work only he can do while he prepares you for your role. So for us as a church, we're entering into the season where we want to turn the volume up and let our community know that we are for them. So many churches want to communicate what they are against and what we want the world to know is what we are for. And we are for people experiencing a God and a Savior who loves them and has a beautiful plan of redemption for their lives. Most people believe that God's against them, that he's out to condemn them. And we want people to know 
the God of John 3.17 that sent his son in the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. People need to know that Jesus is for them. And that is what for Kosciuszko is all about. We're believing that one day in the not so distant future that there will be no one in this county who will be able to say that they have not experienced the tangible love of Jesus through one of his followers. And we cannot fulfill this vision without you. We need you to join us in praying. We need you to join us in serving. We need you to join us in giving generously. And we believe that as you do and as you step forward into these things, you may just get a taste of this vision and never turn back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so, so very much for your love and for your perfect plan. We thank you for the ways that you work in and among us and that you invite us into the story of being rebuilders. So God, I pray right now that you would move in us wherever we're at, whatever we need, whether we need to be taking steps forward in what it looks like to trust you, or we need to take more time to plan and prepare, or we need to just sit in a season of prayer and seek your face. God, I ask that you would lead us in that way. But Lord, help us not to shy away from our role in the story. In this room, there are gifts and passions that are needed around the world. So God, give us a boldness to step out. And Lord, even now as we launch the Love Blitz, I pray that you would go before us and just set up some unbelievable divine appointments where we would be able to share the love of Jesus with those in need. In Christ's name, amen.